You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. In a world filled with more noise in a day than our ancestors had to process in nearly an entire lifetime, the role of the critic feels ever more a necessity. Fashion director and chief fashion critic at the New York Times, Vanessa Friedman, lends her voice to the masses, melding down oceans of information into prose and succinct perspectives so that the rest of us don't have to. While having an opinion is always important, having an informed opinion is even better. In this episode, she speaks candidly about her own trajectory, how she approaches the prestigious role, and the importance of having some blackout time in your day when you're not consuming information. This is Vanessa Friedman, and we are talking about what's contemporary now. Vanessa Friedman, you are the fashion director and chief fashion critic at the New York Times, which is a post you've held since 2014, prior to which you've held positions at a number of other titles and contributed to publications like Vogue, Vanity Fair. You were even an arts contributor for The Economist. So we always like to start in the beginning. At what point did you kind of know that journalism was the pursuit of dreams? I'm not sure I ever knew it. I think I fell into it by mistake. It just turned out to be a very serendipitous error. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in writing, and I was interested in what I thought as my very pretentious late teens, 20-something self would be big ideas and questions of identity and politics. And so I started in magazines thinking I would see what I would see and ended up after about 10 years in fashion because someone saw I had worked at Vogue and thought that meant I knew about fashion, which at that point was not in fact true. But what I realized in the process of all of this is that fashion is like the greatest Trojan horse of a subject that allows you to talk about every big idea you could possibly ever want to talk about pretty much all the time in any context. And it's been a great gift of my career. Absolutely. And when it comes to something like becoming a critic, at what point was that the sort of pivot or decision? Because obviously not all journalism necessarily is positioned in such a way. So at what point did that kind of choice come about? I was probably always going to that choice without necessarily articulating it to myself. Because what really interests me about this area is sort of thinking in the biggest possible context or in the most historical viewpoint about how we got to here, what makes us who we are, why we make the choices we make, what we're saying about ourselves to each other through the gestures and choices we make. And fashion is a way of talking about all of these things as a critic, right? It's one of the things you get to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm lucky because I get to do that and I get to do reporting too. So I get to have my cake and snack on it. Definitely. And what types of channels do you consume information through? Obviously, you're a voracious reader and consumer of contemporary culture in order to have the kind of informed opinions you do. What does that look like? Is it a morning read? Is it a social media? What's that for Vanessa Friedman? I mean, I think we're all in the same position, right? I think we're just constantly being bombarded by information, whether it's in 140 characters or pictures or news flashes or news alerts or podcasts that we're listening to when we're walking the dog. You know, we live in a constant stream of communication. And I think the question for most of us more is when don't you consume as opposed to what do you consume? That is a very good question. So what is your answer to that one? Uh, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm not good at saying no. But I do think that having some blackout time in your day when you're not constantly scanning TikTok or Instagram or Twitter or the 
homepages or on the phone is a good thing. Of course. And given that society as a whole has become increasingly more subjective across different definitions, be that what luxury means today, what success looks like, what beauty is, how does one create a framework through which you establish these critical opinions of fashion and such, given how subjective things really have become today? For me, I try to take myself out of it. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in expressing my gut feelings to others. It's not, you know, do I like that? Do I think it's cute? Do I not think it's cute? Would I wear it? Would I not wear it? The questions I'm interested in answering when I'm looking at a runway show or the street mm -hmm. or a movie or a politician talking, you know, the questions I'm interested in answering are why are they wearing or making what they're making? Who's it for? What's it trying to communicate? In the context of that, does it make sense? Is it successful? Is it legible? Is it evocative? And in the broader context of wherever this brand or person is coming from in their sort of historical tradition, does it make sense? And that's always what I'm trying to answer when I'm writing about what I'm seeing. And you talked about the idea that working within the fashion space allows you to tether it to any element of culture, right? Because it really is such a huge part of that fabric. You have that intersection quite present in a lot of your writings in terms of anything like gender issues, identity, politics. How do you view the role of the fashion critic in promoting dialogue about these broader subjects or in the context of fashion? For me, it's really, it's the fashion critic in a newspaper like the New York Times, right? You have to mm -hmm. add that caveat because I'm not presuming that the way I think about criticism is the way that anyone would think about criticism if they work at a fashion magazine or a website. They come from different places, but coming from where I'm sitting, the way I think about it is where does fashion intersect with all these greater stories that are shaping our experience of the world at this time? Like, where's the sort of nexus of this in clothing, which to me is really just a form of identity, right? And self-expression. And what makes it fashion versus style, for example, is fashion exists at a specific moment in time. It's what is this expression of personal, political, social, cultural identity now versus yesterday or tomorrow or 10 years ago, whereas style, I think, is a much more of a continuous expression. So it's that over time, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. The New York Times in and of itself is such a beacon, right? It's such a commonly referenced source of incredibly relevant journalism for people of all different backgrounds. With that in mind, and knowing that you are now approaching a decade in the role that you're in, and culture has gone through a number of iterations over the past 10 years, how has that experience changed in the same role over time? Do you I approach it differently? It's just gotten broader, because fashion has just become an area that is extending its tentacles into almost every aspect of people's lives. When I started doing this, which was 11 years before I got really to the New York Times, you know, fashion was still very niche. -y. People would still say to me, oh, yeah, I read those magazines in the hairdresser or on the airplane or something. And now every athlete wants to be a fashion brand. Every top star wants to be a fashion brand. Can, I mean, can be a fashion brand, can be a creative director. Every politician is hyper aware of how they're presenting themselves. It is just a subject that has grown and grown and brands themselves are now touching not just 
the clothes we wear on our bodies, but the spaces we inhabit and the experiences that we engage with. Mm -hmm. These areas that used to be very segregated have become incredibly mushy and more and more connected. Something that you had mentioned in a recent interview was that Nike's the biggest apparel company in the world. And obviously that's a pretty big statement. What do you think that says about fashion today? I mean, I think that sports and fashion in particular are two sectors that are in the process of converging. Mm -hmm. They're the two greatest global areas of soft power and mass communication. They are two of the spaces where we have common experiences and communicate common value systems that can be read no matter you know what language you speak or what culture you live in and that makes them incredibly important and i think they share a lot of the same concerns right they're both concerned with community and self-expression again and allegiance to a group and aspiration and achievement and success and all these adjectives that we throw around so i think that you know, Nike's success is just a part of that story mm-hmm. and one of its reflections, but it's a lot bigger than Nike. Of course. So where does that leave luxury then? Embracing sports. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you see it now. Louis Vuitton's got Lair and Messi in an advertisement. Fashion brands are increasingly extending their definition of who's a good brand ambassador to athletes in every sector. And athletes are embracing it right back. The NBA is increasingly present in every front row, mm-hmm. women's or menswear, doesn't really matter. And you've got the Paris Olympics coming up with LVMH as a primary sponsor, and it will probably be the most fashionable luxurious Olympics we have seen. And where do you think that type of evolution leaves something like elitism in the conversation around aspiration or how it's defined? Elitism has always existed. It's part of human Mm -hmm. nature in the same way that fashion has always existed, right? The urge to decorate ourselves and express who we are is part of human nature. It's one of the brilliant insights that Bernard Arnault had back in 1985 when he bought the company that would become Dior and the foundation of his empire. The desire to buy beautiful things, to be around beautiful things, is just a part of what makes us human. And it is eternal. So it's not going away anytime soon. It makes it a very good investment. And I think the definition of desirability and exclusivity changes Mm -hmm. as mores change, our needs change, products change. But the idea of it doesn't change. It always exists. That little pyramid always exists. Do you think something like aspirational relatability is a real thing? Or do you think it's just marketing jargon today? What do you mean by aspirational relatability? Well, talking about something like Nike being the largest apparel brand in the world today, right? There's much more, I wouldn't call it commonality, but accessibility, right? There's less of a niche that's dictating what taste looks like. And you're seeing these trends kind of gravitate towards something that's much more accessible. So that's why I was asking about your thoughts around whether or not elitism still informs the meaning of what aspiration is to most people today, or if there is some type of relatability that's newly become aspirational with those types of changes. I mean, when you say Nike is accessible, it is and it isn't, right? Like, Mm -hmm, you can mm -hmm. buy a Nike sneaker, sure, anytime at many different price points. But if you want the specific Air Jordan in a specific colorway with a specific style, there might be maybe a handful of them made and dropped on a specific moment at a specific time. And if you don't get that then, you're having to pay a bazillion dollars on the resale market. 
And that's been one of, I think, the brilliant innovations of Nike in the way it markets its products, that it has managed to both create a giant foundation of product that people can buy and constantly produce very inaccessible, exclusive pieces that everyone wants and collects. So it's done both in the same way that luxury brands generally do both. They have the foundation of small leather goods and products that they would say are relatively accessible, relative being sort of keyword. And then they've got all sorts of stuff at the top that is made to order, is limited edition, is fantastically expensive, is impossible to get. And you have both those realities existing at the same time. So can sort of lure people in, but also maintain this aura of elitism and connoisseurship and needing to be in the know and needing to have kind of special information and an understanding of what and when and how, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think the servicing of those numerous verticals is the reason behind the emergence of so many different brand collaborations today? Yeah, sure. And the need to have a constant flow of stuff. One of the, the biggest changes over the last couple of years, even, has been our conditioning to expect this constant flow of new stuff, even if it's only a few examples of something, and to embrace it, to demand it, to be fed it. We're in this cycle that is either a virtuous cycle or an incredibly destructive cycle, depending on your point of view, of the absolute end of seasonality and the advent of constant stuff. Well, that brings us to another unavoidable subject, and that's sustainability, right? What do you think is a fair standard or level of accountability that we as a consumer or the industry as a whole should be holding brands to? And at what pace are these improvements expected to be made at? I genuinely think we have to rein in the amount of product that we are making. We live on a sphere, and the idea that we have constant sales growth of double digits every quarter, which is a sort of endlessly upward line, that also somehow equals a round circle. It's important. Like those two things just don't equate, right? They're completely antithetical to each other. And I don't think anyone certainly no major brand I've talked to has really come to grips with that. But there is a difference between profits and sales and revenue, right? There should be a world in which you could be a very healthy business whose profits continue to grow without having a gigantic amount more sales, without the money necessarily coming from sales. To me, that's the kind of big question of the moment. And maybe some of it has to do with resale. Some of it might have to do with a different kind of offering, right? Something that maybe has to do with experiences as much as it has to do with actual physical objects. And it has to do with also changing our mindset and our relationship between investors and stock market and the actual companies. I mean, there's so many moving parts here and the supply chain, which is also incredibly important. It's easy to say, oh, stop making stuff, but stuff also funds the livelihoods of an enormous amount of people around the world. And that's important. And we shouldn't forget it. Stuff runs taxes. Those also are important. We shouldn't forget them. So like none of this is simple. We tend to want to simplify everything. But I also think there are conversations we need to have and there are problems we need to grapple with because otherwise we have a much bigger problem. Is there anyone that you've seen today who's doing what you feel is a particularly incredible job when it comes to sustainability initiatives and practices or changes within large companies? 
In fashion, no. I think there are probably a lot of these conversations going on behind closed doors that I don't know about. And I absolutely acknowledge that those may be happening. And I, I hope they are. I applaud them. I think these companies are run by incredibly smart people who understand what we're facing. And I wouldn't doubt that they have thought about it to some extent. But I don't think anyone's anywhere near where we need to be. And part of the issue is this is a group problem. Mm-hmm. This is an industry where competition is part of the DNA, right? That's what capitalism is about. So how you reconcile the need to work together with the need to compete is another problem that we have to deal with. Have you explored any of the use of biodesign by certain luxury brands, like the use of cactus leathers or mushroom leathers or any of those things? Well, I think the fact that one of the most famous producers of mushroom leather went bankrupt over Mm. the summer is a pretty good indication that we are not anywhere near where we need to be uh, at the moment. I think, you know, there's lots of really promising innovations when it comes to materials, but they are really still at the beginning stages. And until we can make them usable and accessible at scale, both to really big companies and to really small companies, because one of the problems now is that often with fabric mills, materials need to be bought in a certain quantity to be economically meaningful for the producer. And if you're a small independent brand who's only making a tiny production line, you don't actually have access to materials in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's too small. Until we can somehow figure out how to make this meaningful, it's really just a nice idea. Yeah. And ironically, there's a lot of non-sustainable examples of sustainable practices, right? So you've touched upon one with regards to mushroom leather. I think the organic cotton industry as a whole is not scale to the extent that can actually service the needs of that larger change across the industry anyway, even in the case people fell in place. But hopefully we will get there, right? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a segue, but I am so excited about having you on the show and being able to pick your brain about these larger subjects. And something that you wrote about was, of course, the supermodels on the cover of Vogue and our relationship to age and beauty and how it's presented through the fashion machine and all of its respective filters. So What are your thoughts on things like optimizing imagery today in the context of something like a magazine cover? And what should those limits be before they go from right to wrong? The truth is, I think, honestly, that we have no idea what someone who is in their mid-50s or 60s is supposed to look like anymore. Because it's not just magazine covers, right? It's plastic surgery and fillers and treatments and Instagram filters and like the way we are used to seeing each other and the way we're used to seeing public figures online, it's all gotten so skewed that no one has any idea what what things are supposed to be anymore, which casts a weird kind of shadow and sense of suspicion on everything because it makes this the default assumption being, oh, something is going on here. Something has been done to them. You know, Vogue said, oh, we did very little. You know, I've gotten tons of comments on that cover that's like, oh my God, they've done so much. You know, I think truth is probably somewhere in between. I think it's also true that those are for extraordinary looking women who probably look wonderful and also know how to position themselves depending on lighting and cameras and all that to the optimum advantage. So, you know, absent being actually on the shoot, it's hard to know, but I do think it is really meaningful that all of us believe that something was going on that we've gotten ourselves to this position where we don't trust our eyes anymore, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't trust what's being fed us 
because we have heard so much about how it's been adjusted, changed, optimized, whatever word you want to use. And that is something I think we all should really be thinking about because we're all complicit in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost a type of societal programming that kind of becomes somewhat subconscious, right? Because it's just so ubiquitous that you no longer really detect the differences. Right. And then we sit around and we're like, everyone complains about fake news and what's fake news and we can't trust each other. But we've created a situation that, though it might not seem nearly as dangerous as not being able to agree on what has actually happened in terms of an insurrection in the U.S. Capitol, it's part of the same problem. Right? Like it is a slippery slope, and I don't think that you can entirely separate them out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have a problem now with understanding what is real and what is not real. Absolutely. And that actually brings me to the point of the role of the critic in culture today. There is such an abundance of information, of content, of discourse in the day-to-day experience, no matter where you go and what it is that you're engaging with. And so you have these kind of lighthouse figures that are the critics, the curators, the editors who distill the general kind of wave into actualized particles, if you will. You know, there's some type of defining moment that I think helps the masses sort of understand things in a little bit more of a curated way. And of course, it's up to them to decide whether or not they subscribe to that point of view. But they become these sort of islands that people buy into because otherwise it's just impossible to kind of wade through that. So being Vanessa Friedman of The New York Times, how do you view the role of a critic in culture today? I think what you just said is how I think about my job. You're there to connect the dots between a variety of things to try and explain the world to people who are your readers, to help them understand why they're feeling what they're feeling or thinking what they're thinking or why they might be seeing what they're seeing to the best of your ability. Mm -hmm. And I'm not claiming that it's right necessarily. It's just, you know, this is how I see it and this is how I make sense of it. And if it's coherent enough and logical enough, maybe it is helpful for other people. But I think it's the same way everyone at the New York Times thinks about their job, which is just how do you weed through the white noise? How do you try and distill it into what's important? And how do you help your readers then use that information to make their own lives make sense? That also answers the next question I had, which is, of course, the element of responsibility in that role. Because fashion as an industry has a certain level of responsibility for how it's impacting the culture that it's influencing with the visuals that we're putting out into the world, the ideas of what beauty or style or success look like. But based on what you just said, I'm assuming you do have that level of awareness in terms of the responsibility and how your voice might shape someone's perspective or even affect someone's business, right? I think you have to be as balanced and fair as you can be, but also be as brave Mm -hmm. as you can be too. Because I think if you're not willing to you know, have gone through the information, have gone through the data, have done your research, have talked to enough people, and then be willing to say, okay, this is what I think, good or bad, positive or negative, then it doesn't mean anything. You have to commit yourself to an idea at a certain point and be willing to stand behind that commitment and also talk to people who don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. And I welcome that. Like, I'm very happy when readers write me emails or tweets or whatever, they decide to get in touch, disagreeing with me. You know, I think I can learn something and hopefully we can have a productive conversation about it. Have you ever had a moment where you found it particularly challenging to handle a critique of your critique, be it from a designer or the public or someone? I don't know if it's challenging. I think, you know, it's hard, particularly say you're talking about a runway show, right? I think it's hard to just write a bad review, right? I don't take that lightly at all because I know how 
hard people work. I know how much they care. And it's not easy to say to someone, well, I know you had that idea, but I don't think it was a good idea. Here's why. But I also think, again, if you're not willing to say when something is bad, then when you say something is good, it doesn't mean anything, right? And hopefully people take criticism in the spirit in which it is meant, which is as something to think about and something to learn about. I had an experience with Balenciaga when they were upset about some of the stuff we had written during the scandal, the Zerbruhaha over their ad campaign at the end of last year. And part of what I was hoping they would understand is like, this is actually a conversation that is going on in the world around you. Mm-hmm. And you should know that's happening. You should know that some people feel this way. That's actually useful information. It's not shit stirring. Absolutely. Was there ever a show, or perhaps there was more than one, that kind of struck a new chord or challenged the paradigm or made you look at fashion differently or really stood out? Oh, so many. So many. Which is great. You know, it's really exciting. Like people often say to me, What do you expect from the season? I'm like, I'm trying not to expect anything. You know, I don't know what they're going to do. I want to be surprised. That's the best part of this job is when you see something and suddenly you think, oh my God, that's exactly who a certain woman wants to be next. And she didn't know it until she saw that. Phoebe Philo's Celine collection was like that. A lot of Demna's work at Balenciaga was like that. I think that's what keeps fashion going. That's the thing that keeps us coming back. And do you think that being overly inundated with new things that we've been discussing is something that makes it harder to stand out and achieve success within this marketplace or the industry at large? Or do you feel like it's still just as possible, but perhaps the metrics are slightly different? I think it depends what you mean by new. Mm. By new, you simply mean another thing that is being produced that was not being produced yesterday. Mm -hmm. I don't think it makes it harder for people to stand out because that actually isn't new. It's just more, Mm -hmm. more stuff. New stuff is relatively rare, like new ideas, new ways of thinking, new ways of putting things together, new lines, new combinations. And that's, you know, you absolutely know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. I think what maybe is harder is that the pressure to continually sign off on the more stuff makes the actual creation of new stuff harder because there's less time to do it in, right? It does take thought. It takes experimentation. It takes making mistakes. It takes drafting stuff that you end up throwing out the same way that you do when you're writing something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it takes work. When you're busy making lots of other decisions on lots of other stuff, you have less time to do that kind of work. It's so true. And what type of advice do you have on a young budding journalist who wants to understand how they can break into the noise? You know, how do you capture attention in an attention deficit economy as a writer? I think that's a question for readers Mm, (laughs) more than for writers. I think most of us are just doing our thing and crossing our fingers. You know, I think you want to try and ideally have a point of view that's your own and a voice that's your own. And One of the nice things about being a journalist now is that we live in a world where voice is increasingly valued. For a long time, there was a kind of newspaper voice that everyone had to write in. It was particularly engaging. It was very factual. Same way there was like an anchorman voice or an economist voice. And I think now there's much more interest in individuality. Mm -hmm. And that's about word choice and sentence rhythm and all of that. 
But I still think it's really important that you do your research, you understand your context, you talk to as many people as possible, you do the basic work of journalism at the same time, that you don't just rely on voice. Absolutely. And that's something else that I also wanted to ask. There's a common, I wouldn't say it's a debate, but perhaps we'll call it a debate for the purpose of this conversation around whether or not elevated language is preferred or speaking in a more common vernacular is actually more effective. So how do you approach your writing? Because clearly you can do both and you are speaking to a broad audience. How do you decide on what that tone of voice is or, or things like vocabulary? I love a fancy word. <laughs> <laughs> I love a fancy word mixed with a really dumb one. Um, no, I think, you know, it's just, it's, it honestly, it's how you hear your voice in your head, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I write in a slightly different way than I talk, but I don't think it's dramatically different. I mean, clearly it works, right? <laughs> um, the last and final question is, of course, the namesake one, and that is, what is contemporary now? I would like to say it's listening and engaging in dialogue and being open to the world, but that might just be my hope mm. as opposed to our reality. You know, I think a lot of people would say that what's contemporary now is <laughs> existing in a little echo chamber mm-hmm. and not listening to anyone else. I think the contemporary is being able to express yourself, and that is the same as it has been at every moment in the past. It's just the ways in which we do it that changes. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I know you're a very busy person, and uh, it was an absolute honor to pick your brain on these larger cultural narratives. And thank you so much for uh, the pearls of wisdom shared. I don't know how poorly they were, but thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. 